This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I just wanted you to walk me through the whole thing again and how it works. We help the wealthiest families in the U.S. get their kids into school. So I've done 761, what I would call side door. The front door means getting in on your own. So I've created this kind of side door in because my families want a guarantee. And it works every time. The Varsity Blues sting exploded into public view in 2019 with dozens of parents across the country arrested for paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their kids into elite universities. There was a Netflix documentary, books, countless stories, and even a Saturday Night Live skit. The vast majority of the parents pleaded guilty, but a handful decided to fight the charges in court. And now, nearly two and a half years later, the first trial of two parents is starting in Boston. Here to tell us about what's ahead is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who's been covering the case since the beginning. So, Pat, tell us about the two fathers who are going to be tried. Forty parents were indicted by the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts. Thirty-three pled guilty. Six of them are fighting the charges, and one got a pardon from President Trump just before he left office. Two dads are fighting the charges in this first trial. It's John Wilson, the private equity investor, who is a former Staples and Gap executive, and Gamal Abdel-Aziz, a former executive for Wynn Resort. And he operated in Macau and Hong Kong most of the time, I understand. Rick Singer, the mastermind of this case, had two different schemes. One was to boost the college entrance test scores of kids whose parents paid money. And he would get a test whiz to take the test for the kids. The second scheme is called the side door. The back door would be if your parents donated $7 million and you get into the college of your choice because you've given them a new athletic building or a new gym. The side door is you don't have to donate as much money. You could give the $200,000 to Rick Singer as a charitable donation, and he would help with friends and connections at all these universities and get the applicant student in as a purported athletic recruit, so as like a jock for a designated sport. Wilson is accused of paying Singer a total of $1.2 million for his three kids. Abdella Aziz is accused of paying Singer $300,000 and more to a USC athletic coach for his daughter's admission. And they don't deny they made the payments. John Wilson is accused of trying to get his three kids into colleges. The first was a son who he allegedly paid Singer $200,000 to get his kid in as a water polo player. The dad says, but my kid really was a water polo player. There was no faking involved. I gave $200,000 to Singer. He told me he was going to give it to USC. And as a matter of fact, 100000 ended up at USC. And I got a thank you note for my donation. Meanwhile, Singer pocketed the next 100000 And then he's accused of allegedly paying a million dollars to Singer, $500,000 a pop for the two twin daughters to get one into Stanford as a purported athlete and one into Harvard as a purported athlete. The dad, Wilson, says that his two daughters tested beautifully and had excellent, if not near-perfect, college board scores. So they could have gotten into the college of their choice. Then the dad, Gamal Abdelaziz, He's accused of trying to get his daughter into USC as a purported basketball recruit. He says he didn't need to pay a bribe because she was a good enough athlete. Is USC on trial here in a sense? Well, it's USC and the process. 
and USC was one of the schools that everybody wanted to get into. It was like a hot, popular school for these West Coast parents. So some of these parents went after USC and its admissions processes, and they subpoenaed documents. And eventually, they got what they call a smoking gun, which is an eight-page spreadsheet of names of students who they knew at USC. It was called the VIP list. And it was submitted for admission over a period of years. And I think there's several dozen students. It's like an eight-page Excel spreadsheet. And it explains their connection, whether they were good for, quote-unquote, $15 million to the men's golf team or $3 million to the USC Sporting Center. It's just stunning to see this all written down in this list. There was a magistrate at one point, and she was questioning what this VIP list was. And USC said, oh, there's nothing wrong. These are people we just consider VIPs. And the judge was saying, well, why do you even have this list? So some of these parents say, this is an accepted way many schools operate, that if you just kick in enough cash, you know, for a reasonable donation, you can get your kid into the college of their choice if you know the right people. So they're arguing their children were just part of this group of people that are on this VIP list, and there was nothing wrong with what they were doing, and it's not criminal. So it seems like a two-pronged defense. The first is, we did nothing wrong. And the second is, the mastermind, Rick Singer, misled us. Right. And there's a big question. I was actually really shocked when I covered the final pretrial conference for the judge on August 18th. And the government slipped in on a footnote and a filing the night before said, we don't know if we're calling Rick Singer the mastermind. I was kind of looking forward to hearing what his story was because the parents are saying he double-talked us, he lied to us, but we want to question him and grill him on cross-examination. And there's also some notes. Singer took notes on his iPhone just as he was beginning to cooperate with the government, with the FBI and IRS agents in the fall of 2018. And he says the FBI agents told him to, quote-unquote, tell a fib to the parents to get them to implicate themselves on why he was recording their calls. So the parents are arguing Singer is a liar and basically fabricated all these things that he said to us on the telephone. So he told us one story before he cooperated that everything was on the up and up and was totally a pure and viable and honest way of getting your kid into college. But the minute he started cooperating and he realized his neck was on the line, that's when he started lying and telling a different version. And we never agreed to what he was saying on these wiretaps. So because Singer may not testify, the parents probably cannot bring in those iPhone notes because that witness will not be on the stand. So it's a big question I've talked to lawyers about whether or not the parents can make hay of those iPhone notes would prove or help their argument that Singer was basically concocting stories the minute the FBI was listening. I can see how not calling Singer will help the prosecution keep those notes out, but how do you not call the alleged mastermind of the scheme? Won't the jurors see that as a hole in the case and ask, why are they not calling Singer? They must be hiding something. And some people have asked me, well, why don't the parents call Singer? But rules of evidence, and Jane, you'll probably agree with me, if you call someone, you can't impeach your own witness unless the court declares them a hostile witness. And it's like a whole procedure you have to go through. And the parents, lawyers, have never spoken to Singer ever. 
So they don't really know what his story is. It's not like the prosecutors who prep somebody for days or weeks having 26 sessions and knowing they ask a question, they exactly know what the answer is. This would be like flying blind and asking a question that might be a trapdoor for the parent because then Singer could turn on the defense lawyer and say, well, your client's a criminal or whatever. So the parents may not necessarily want to call Singer, but they could make an argument that there's a missing witness. You know, they want to have the jury note that Singer is missing and maybe make him out to be the fall guy or the real villain of this whole scheme to rebut those wiretaps. Some of those recordings are very, you know, the parents are talking about, oh, can I get a two for one? Oh, how much is it going to cost me? And it sounds like the parents are scheming. A jury could construe that that's evidence of a father entering into an illicit agreement with Singer. So the prosecution can introduce the tapes because the FBI recorded them. But normally, wouldn't you have the person who recorded them on the stand to explain them? Yes. Right. And you think about sometimes there's mob cases where they have a wiretap and they don't have a person that made the wiretap. They just have the FBI agent saying, yeah, we put a wire in the Ravenite Social Club and that's how we got Don Gotti talking. They already made a request to the court to authenticate and the usage of the tape, the consensual recordings that Singer made without Singer. Do you know if either of the fathers are going to take the stand? Of course, they don't have to. That remains to be seen, I guess, how the case plays out for the government side of it. One of the things that's really interesting is a couple of parents are going to testify for the government, a couple from California named Bruce and Davina Isaacson, and they were the first to plead guilty of all the parents. They immediately did a deal, and now they're going to testify what they were thinking to give the jury some perspective of what parents may have been thinking and what these two fathers may have been thinking. They're also going to call some coaching staff that pled guilty and other co-conspirators with Singer in his business to give insight that this was a gam, that Singer was milking money. I mean, the government, when they announced this case, said Singer had been doing this for years and had made $25 million. We've added up the amount of bribes in this case. I think we got to maybe $10 million or $8 million. We've talked about this case several times. And initially, I thought the prosecution has a slam dunk case. But it seems like the defense might knock some holes in the prosecution's case. What you can do to get a plea deal is different from how it'll play before a jury. I mean, some people have said, oh, this is going to be so impalatable to the general public and jurors that they're going to immediately convict. And the judge summoned more than 200 people to courts in Boston to have people fill out a questionnaire. And it's a 13-page questionnaire that asks, how much do you know about this case? Have you ever had a child apply to college? Have you ever worked in the college system? Do you have work in fundraising? Do you have anything against cooperators? So they're going to try to weed out those with opinions that might be swayed one way or another and to weed out those people and try to get a fair and impartial jury. Thanks, Pat. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. Another group of charismatic fish are the darters. Darters are a small, wonderfully colored, bottom-dwelling fish that looks more suited to live in a coral reef or tropical aquarium than the cold, fast-flowing streams of the Smokies. The snail darter is a tiny Tennessee fish 
that made big waves in legal waters, that is. The three-inch fish became famous when the case to save it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the court's first decision on the landmark Endangered Species Act in 1978 articulated an expansive interpretation of the law in favor of protections for the little fish. Now, after nearly 50 years, the snail darter has been taken off the endangered species list. Joining me is the lawyer who took that case to the Supreme Court, Zig Platter, a professor at Boston College Law School. Tell us about the snail darter. The snail darter was a tiny uh, perch that was found in the last 30 miles of big, flowing, clean river in Tennessee because 67 other dams basically eliminated wherever else it lived. And the Tennessee Valley Authority decided they wanted to build their last dam to impound this river. And the darter, it turns out, was you know a perfect illustration to, to humans, uh, canary in the coal mine, that this was the last place left for humans. It had incredible trout fishing, and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts would do the float trips there, and the history of the Cherokee Indians. The little fish was, in effect, a barometer for a lot of really strong public values right at the edge of the Smoky Mountains National Park. And so the farmers fought to protect the, the, their farms by protecting the fish. Um, there were 300 family farms that were condemned by the government agency, most of them for resale, not, most of them not for uh, the little lake. So it, it's a complicated story because you've got to explain the agency was not building this for hydropower. It wasn't building it for flood control. It, was, it had to justify it by inventing a pretend city that they said would be built on the land that they condemned. It never was. And also, this would be a recreational lake. It's not a hydro lake in terms of its justifications. That everything's connected to everything else, but it's a complicated story. How did the farmers take up this battle? Well, the farmers really were quite sophisticated for, you know, Appalachian farmers who most of them had not gone to to college. They got a lawyer to bring an environmental impact statement case, first of all. And the government agency, we don't have to do an impact statement because we're an emergency agency or something. Uh, They went to court and they got an injunction. So for 16 months, the Tennessee Valley Authority had to prepare an environmental impact statement. But once you do that, it's procedure. They've, they've done the procedure. They can go ahead and flood the valley. Um, even though the farmers said the valley, the agriculture, the tourism, the history, uh, is worth much more than, than the last most marginal dam. But once they lost, they'd about given up. And then suddenly this little fish was discovered. And the guy who discovered it was in the middle of a river. He bent over, and it's a shallow, beautiful, clear river. He picked up this fish in his fingers. Then he walked over to the bank, and he said to the farmer, this is an endangered fish, and this might save your farms. And so they basically carried the case. My students and I did the law of it, and we had a local attorney on the trial as well. But the farmers... 
They, they went to Washington. They testified. This was grassroots democracy, an incredible story. And then, you know, we won in the Supreme Court. Tell me how it got to the Supreme Court. Well, at trial, the judge in Tennessee, of course, decided in favor of the Tennessee Valley Authority. But he said, this dam is going to jeopardize the survival of the fish, and it's going to destroy its natural habitat. But I'm not going to stop it. And then the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said, excuse me, but those are both separate violations of the Endangered Species Act. So they stopped the project, and the agency took it to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court said, well, Congress said you cannot destroy an endangered species or destroy its habitat if you're a federal agency. Meanwhile, of course, there was a firestorm going because this is the only law that most citizens could bring a suit for that would question the rationality of a project. Normally, all they have to do is do the paperwork. That's what an environmental impact statement was. So eventually, after the Supreme Court, there was a cabinet-level economic study about what was worth more, the river development that the farmers wanted or the dam development that the agency wanted. I mean, this was the God Committee, an extraordinary tribunal that most people don't know about. Unanimously, they said the dam was never worth building in the first place, and it isn't worth completing because the river, with agriculture, with, with the historical stuff, with tourism, with an industrial park, the farmers really made an amazingly good argument. And so it was vetoed. And then in Congress, the industries that were worried about the Endangered Species Act and the government agencies that build dams were able to change the law. The river died and the fish was wiped out in its major natural habitat. It was really heartbreaking politics because every member of Congress got a message from the Department of Interior and this high-level committee saying this dam will destroy more than it will ever create. But America didn't know that because the, the firestorm of political rhetoric was all, you know, stupid little fish, gigantic hydroelectric dam. The dam is a tiny little dam. And it's not a hydro dam. And these cynical environmentalists who don't care about the fish, well, you know, we care about all living things. And in this case, this living thing was connected to economic values. And so it was heartbreaking to, to lose the little Tennessee River. People were coming from hundreds of miles away to fish this place before it died. Who relocated the fish? Well, once a species is endangered, if Congress has said you cannot save it in its natural habitat, as they said here, then the Department of Interior puts together a recovery team. And they said, well, what can we do to keep the species from dying out? And working with TVA, and TVA said, okay, where can we transplant it? The Department of Interior worked out a plan, and so they put it in several rivers that weren't ideal. And so that's part of this story that, you know, some people say, oh, well, when you have an endangered species, you transplant it somewhere else. It took 40 years. It took 40 years, but the transplant now seems to be successful. But it's a fallback. Transplantation is, you know, it's second best. No, it's not even second best. It's third best. First best is to keep a species, to conserve it in its natural habitat. Second is to put it into a place where it can live without any more human investment, human actions. 
But the third best, I guess, is what they did because these rivers in the summertime got hot, didn't have enough oxygen. So TVA now has to pump oxygen into the transplant rivers to keep the fish alive. And they're pulsing their dams to wash the mud away so that the fish can have spawning beds, eggs, and children in, in the clean gravel below some of these dams. So the fish are surviving, but they depend on a government agency maintaining oxygen pumping into the water and a special flushing water pressure process in the dams. And that's not ideal. You you want a transplant that doesn't require human support forever. That's what we've got. The government said it's no longer in danger of extinction. Is that true or not true? That's right. The scientists said if the TVA keeps putting liquid oxygen into the water and keeps flushing the dams in a way it hadn't done before, so as to clean alternative rivers where the fish could survive, then the fish can survive. It's no longer endangered. And that's science, and I believe it's true. It's just we have to be sure that those measures to conserve the species go on how long? Forever. Forever. So wouldn't it have been better then to leave it on the endangered species list? Why did you file a petition to delist it? That's a really tough question, and there are complicated answers. In scientific terms, it was no longer endangered because the agencies were pumping oxygen and blowing the water clean. So, But there's more to it. The prior federal administration was attacking the Endangered Species Act. It was cutting regulations this way and that, that the protected species. And we started hearing that there was a specific plan to delist the snail darter in a way that would not protect it. And so it was sort of preemptive. We don't like transplantation, but um, by filing the petition ourselves, we sort of get special standing to make sure that those measures continue, that the delisting regulation will require those actions to go on forever. And, you know, if there's ever a double cross, if the agency stopped protecting the fish, we will be able, under the delisting regulation, immediately to file for emergency relisting. And it's unfortunate that we have to talk about it in those terms. But I'm thinking that in the circumstances, it was going to be delisted by the prior administration. We filed in July 2019. There was still a year and a half of the prior administration or more. And the safest thing to do was to try to be part of the process to make sure that maintenance of the protections could could be assured. What did environmentalists learn from the whole saga of the snail darter? Well, it's 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 interesting. In spite of the tremendous uh, criticism that was poured against the snail darter, 
I mean, it it really was. We were called fringe lunatics, and and uh, Rush Limbaugh called us homo socialists. Uh, I mean, for protecting a stupid little fish against a gigantic hydroelectric dam. Of course, that wasn't the case. But this is the point. Even when it was thought to be an extreme case, the courts enforced the law. And that is a precedent that makes people pay attention to the law, even if they don't like it, if they know that even in that case, the courts enforced it. So, so there is that. A, a really good precedent came from it. And the, the species, you know, the Endangered Species Act has recovered a fair number of species over the years. The Act works. The Clean Water Act works because the water in the rivers where they put the fish is cleaner than it was um, back 40 years ago. So, so it's one of those things where you make the best decision you can in the circumstances when the really best solution for everyone, for the farmers, for fishermen, for the Cherokee Indians that, that had their sacred sites in this river area, and for the fish, you, when you lose it there, you do the best you can somewhere else. Um, but the precedent in the law is a good, strong one. Tell me what the precedent is and whether you think this Supreme Court would recognize that precedent today. I mean, that's, of course, a complicated question. The present Supreme Court says, the, 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 the members who, who've been put there recently say that they generally follow precedent. They don't overturn prior Supreme Court decisions. Now, we'll see. With Roe versus Wade, that will be, of course, a question. And But this was such a declaratory decision by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Warren Berger, saying that the Endangered Species Act represents institutionalized caution. You don't destroy a species uh, when, if there's any possible uh, alternative. And of course, in most of these cases, there are alternatives. The precedent is that the court's will enforce the protection of the species and of its habitat. Um, and that's really something. It's, it's cited all the time for the importance of not having a court overturn a law. And um, it's been used to protect many other species, but it's also been used in other settings, too, where where there's a question of whether the Water Pollution Act is going to be. Well, you cite TVA versus Hill, the snail darter case, and courts say, oh, yeah, that's that extreme case where the courts just enforce the law. I guess that's what the law must be. And if Congress is going to change it, and, you know, Congress is always a question. It's, it's, but, but, you know, Congress doesn't easily change the law. Uh, it, it holds things together. And over time, very often endangered species are sensitive little indicators of human importance, of human economics as well as ecology. The, 
the plan that the farmers did for the river had a tourism route from the interstates going up through the valley, through the historic areas, through the farmland, into the Smokies Park, it, which gets 11 million people a year. It would have been an incredible moneymaker for the local region. Instead of just one more dam, the 68th dam, which is already getting polluted with algae. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Zig Platter, a professor at Boston College Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Rosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.